we are called to be teaching one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, if you've been paying attention, the message has already been preached in the songs. And I, I want to thank the worship team and all of the choir out here singing. I uh, especially want to thank Bill for the care he takes in choosing the songs that go along with the messages. They're absolutely perfect. And seriously, the message has already been preached. Uh, and I'm still going to preach the other one. But it's, I think it's always a great thing to be able to uh, understand that the teaching time isn't just the, the uh, time the pastor gets up or the preacher gets up. Teaching time is all through the service, and Bill does a great job with that and a great attitude, and appreciate that very much. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer now. Our Heavenly Father, we come to the teaching of your word now, and thank you that it is your word. It's not ours. It's not anything we made up. So I pray that it would be effective with us, each one. May we never try to apply it for someone else, but each one of us individually as your Holy Spirit moves. Help it to be a different person, each one of us as we leave here than when we came in. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture this morning that was already read, and incidentally I appreciate the uh, scripture read with passion, which is the way it should be. But our scripture reveals the sinfulness of partiality. That partiality is also known as favoritism sometimes in some of the translations. Think of partiality having poor attitudes and behavior toward others simply for one reason. I've got a problem with somebody and that one reason is because of the word different. Somebody is different than I am. And if you're different than I am in a particular way, doesn't matter what it is, it could be any of a number of things, then I've got a problem with you, and that's what partiality is all about. I don't like you. I avoid you. I don't respect you. I don't befriend you. I have a bias against you. I'm prejudicial against you. I'm ready to write you off in every way. Why? What is your crime? What is your sin? What have you done wrong? Nothing except you're different than I am in some way or another. I'd like to tell you a make-believe story, or is it make-believe, about a boy named, this is a safe name, Rolo. Don't believe there are any Rolos in here. Rolo was a very unhappy boy. He was in junior high school. That explains a large part of it, maybe. Incidentally, I attended two junior high schools. I've taught in a junior high school. I've been a youth pastor working with junior high school students. And I can attest that some of the cruelest partiality faux pas take place during that vulnerable time frame. Self-image in a middle school or a junior high school student is very fragile. It's at a time when you're trying to figure out who you are. And it's also at a time when everybody else is trying to rest on you some of the, the problems that they're having with themselves and capturing their own identity. It's a very cruel time. And anybody that's in junior high school, I have a lot of admiration for you. And I trust that you'll understand this message is for you as well as for everybody else. Uh, but anyway, Rolo was in junior high school. Rolo was more than average in intelligence and appearance and certain abilities. The problem is he didn't realize that he was a good guy. He was convinced that he was less than a nobody. 
He thought he was a total reject. Why did he think that way? It was because he was different than those who were considered to be in. He had a very pronounced difference that I hesitate to mention in the company of such respectable people. Because of his problem, Rollo didn't look forward to going to school. In fact, he hated to go. He was a Christian, but even his Christian friends seemed to avoid him at school, at least when the other people were around. His stomach always felt a little sick in the morning. He often felt lonely. He realized he was different than others, and they told him about it often. Why wouldn't they accept him with his difference? His parents wanted to help, but they weren't able. He had everything going for him except for the one thing that made him different than the others. He could not rise above it. What was it that made him different? What was it that was causing such unhappiness? I'll tell you what it was. Rollo bought his sneakers at Dollar General. He didn't have Nike Air Max 90s. $140, by the way, pictured on the screen. He didn't have them. He didn't have Air Jordan retros. He didn't even have Air Thompsons. He had the cheapest of all cheapies. His parents couldn't afford any better. His friend's parents could. Was that an exaggerated story, do you think? Uh, you can put a lot of details in there besides that one, but that, no, that's not an exaggerated story, and I'm not sure that's imagined either. You know, the problem is, can anyone here relate to Rollo? Can any of you, you might think back to your junior high days, but you don't have to even think back to your junior high days because you realize that you can leave junior high, but junior high never leaves you. Some of those things that you were told when you were in junior high, some of those things you experienced, some of the differences you had from other people still stay with us when we're older. We never get over them without the Lord's help. We're threatened with being different even now. So we learn to conform along the way. And conformity is not always a good thing. Isn't it a shame that people feel they have to dress a certain way or look a certain way to be of worth? Isn't it even more of a shame that we make them feel that way? Isn't it a crime that valuable, capable, and special people look at themselves the way others do? Others look out of their own ego needs and try to pull them down. It's obviously not just with sneakers, but with any difference. It can be the way someone looks. It can be someone's ears. It can be someone's size. People look at you different because there's one way and maybe you're skinny to them, maybe you're fat to them. Um, it's not even good to be just right. You know, it's just right and people will be saying, oh, little Miss Perfect, I hate her. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't pay to be anything, really, when you're in junior high school sometimes. It's obviously not with sneakers, as I mentioned. Also, it could be the color of somebody's skin. It could be an accent. It could be a speech defect. And you know what? Here's another hard part of junior high or middle school or early high school age. If a body part that you have is different than the other kids, they memorialize it with a nickname. They take that body part and they make a nickname out of it. My friends in the circle that I, in the sphere of influence that I had, they had nicknames. They weren't at all creative. But one person's nickname was Foot. He had large feet. Another one was Ear. 
Somehow he had misshapen ears. I never even noticed what it was, but the group called him that, so I did too. And it wasn't just a nickname. It was if he was in church right now and somebody mentioned the word foot in a song or ear in a song or the preacher mentioned it or something, the group of friends would turn around and look at the person and point at him and all that sort of thing. It can be a very cruel time. I had another friend, actually it was my brother, they called him Tooth. Called him Tooth because he was sucker punched in a football game and knocked his front tooth out and we weren't able to get it fixed for a long time. And so uh, they called attention to that and you can imagine he was already a little self-conscious, actually a lot self-conscious about that. Another guy was called Beak. He had a prominent proboscis. I'm saying that in code so that anybody could. Another guy was called Eyebrows because he didn't seem to have any, not that we could see. You know what they called me? They called me Stick. And I hated it. And a prominent girl, she was the only one that called, she called me Zipper. She said if I stood sideways and stuck out my tongue, I'd look like a zipper. <laughs> and, and you're laughing. I never laughed. But the incredible thing about it is that it's because I was different and because my friends were different, had a little difference, it doesn't matter what it is, but the problem is that's what partiality is about. Partiality is taking someone who is different and then writing that person off one way or another. And it's a very, very bad thing to be done. Well, there's one main point in our 13 verses this morning. I trust it will help the Rolos who are still with us and those who are still recovering from being one of him in school. That one point is stated in verse 1 and then explained further in the rest of the verses. And I'm going to summarize it with four words. The, the first word is going to be simply the word principle. Here's the principle in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. Allow others to be different than you are. And in fact, embrace those differences. Diversity is not a bad word. The word for partiality that is here indicates that we should not have the extra respect or favoritism towards someone based on outward appearance rather than on the intrinsic worth of that individual. We understand that it's only man that looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And still, we look on the outward appearance. And we look on those things that we shouldn't be bothered with at all. So partiality meaning extra respect, extra favoritism. We shouldn't prefer as more worthy one who is rich, one who is high-born, one who is powerful, not the good-looking, the high-jumping, the fast-talking in comparison with others who lack those things. Don't be so small, James says. Don't get trapped by the world's values. Now, as James is writing this, do you think he's upset and appalled that the pagans played favorites? Look at those people out there. Look at what they do. That's awful. Well, no, this direct command to show no partiality was written to Christians. You can see it in the first verse. My brothers, those who hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is it who holds faith in Jesus Christ? It's the believers. It's the Christians. In verse 5, my beloved brothers. So he's talking to Christians. This isn't a message for the outside world. This is a message for us to make sure that we're not people that show partiality. Was this command preventive or was it prescriptive? Was the command preventive 
or prescriptive. And by that I mean, was it due to try to, was he giving it to try to prevent something from happening so that it never came on them? Or was it something that was already there that he was giving a prescription for? They needed to take something so they could get better from this disease of partiality. Well, I think it's, it's very, very clear that it's written to believers who are already playing favorites. The verb's in the present active imperative. It means stop showing partiality. You're already doing it, and you need to stop what you're doing. It was prescriptive, not preventive. It was too late to be preventive. It had to be something now. Here's what we're going to do about it. Now, if it were true of believers then, shouldn't we be on special guard today? So the first word, principle. The principle is very clear. Show no partiality. And then there's an example of that principle. That example is in verses 2 through 4. Jumping ahead a little bit here. Don't mind that picture. But example. And in verses 2 to 4, we have an adult example. We're not in middle school now. This is an adult example because adults are middle schoolers or junior hires, grown hopefully up, but not entirely. This example is being partial toward the rich and biased against the poor. Verse 2, a man comes into the church service. Let's call him man number one. He had on a gold ring and fine clothes. It's somewhat like what's pictured before us right now. Maybe a present-day equivalent would be he had an expensive three-piece suit, he had a Rolex watch, he had patent leather shoes that you could look into and see your reflection well enough to shave by if you were short enough to look into shoes and if you shaved. He had the latest iPhone sticking out of his pocket. He had a Pierre Cardin tie worth more than your car. And to top it off, you saw a Pittsburgh Steelers terrible towel in his car. <laughs> the epitome of extravagance. <laughs> this man comes into the assembly. If you're a church leader, you're hoping he's a tither. Otherwise, maybe you're hoping that you can meet him afterwards and make him feel at home. He's the kind of person we need around here, you're thinking. Is he? Maybe he's an axe murderer, for all we know, because you can't tell from the outside. Also, in verse 2, man in shabby clothing, it says, also comes in to the service. His sweatsuit is ill-fitting. The top is blue, the bottom is blue, but they're a different shade of blue. All they have in common is that they're both faded. Soon they will be a better matching gray. And worst of all, he has on a cap of the Washington Redskins. <laughs> He's unkempt. The stubble on his face indicates his razor has been on extended leave. He may not smell all that good either. The literal translation for the word shabby in our text is that he is in filthy, dirty clothes. He thinks a dry cleaner is someone washing windows outside under an umbrella. James says, if you pay special attention to man number one, the rich man, offer him a good seat and say to man number two, sorry, it's standing room only for you unless you want to sit on the floor near me so I can keep an eye on you, then you have done something very wrong. You've made distinctions, you've discriminated against man number two, you've created separation, you've made a judgment by appearance, you've shown partiality or favoritism, you have become, as the text says, you've become a judge with an evil thought. 
You have pulled perfectly good flowers out of your garden because you decided they were weeds. They're the wrong color, they're the wrong shade, they're the wrong style, but God says they're all my precious flowers. And don't forget, it's my garden. Think carefully on this incident from the life of Mahatma Gandhi. It's 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 a sad story. He later gained world attention, but he says in his autobiography that in his student days, when he was really interested in the Bible, deeply touched by the readings of the Gospels, he seriously considered becoming a Christian at that point. Christianity seemed to offer the real solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India up. One Sunday, he went to a nearby church to attend services. He decided he was going to visit with the pastor afterwards and ask for how to be saved and how to understand some of the other doctrines of the Christian faith. But when he entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested he go worship with his own people. He left and never came back. He said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And he did. He'd have made a great Christian, wouldn't he? He would have had a great impact on a whole lot of people. Some of you may be breathing a sigh of relief and be saying, I would never do anything like that. I would never be guilty of some of these partiality things that are going on. But look at verse 3. It says, if you pay attention. You know what pay attention there means? It's translated to turn the eyes upon, to look at, to gaze on, to look up to, to admire, to regard highly. We don't have to say or do anything tangible to be discriminating. We only have to be feeling it. That's enough. Does that example of James make sense? Is it relevant? Would you ever find yourself admiring the well-dressed, rich-looking individual and totally ignoring the poor-looking, nerdy, different individual? Do you find yourself exclusively drawn to the lovelies, to the sames, to the comfortables, Do you have a problem loving someone with hair too long, cut the wrong way, with one too many tattoos as you see it, with holy jeans, not H-O-L-Y, but H-O-L-E-Y, holy jeans and not put in by the manufacturer, the ones that get there by use and disuse? Do you find yourself avoiding the people that are overweight or underweight, the nerds, the rubes, or whatever you want to call them? Do you find yourself, because somebody's different, showing partiality toward that person in one way or another. There's a third word that helps us to unlock this passage a little bit, and it's the word fallacy, and it's in verses 5 through 7. I have a a definition of fallacy that I looked up, and it says, a mistaken belief, especially one based on unsound argument, a failure in reasoning which renders an argument invalid. And the fallacy of partiality is exposed in our scripture this morning. And in the example before us in verses 5 through 7, it is telling us being wealthy isn't all it's cracked up to be. Being wealthy is not what people are looking for to fulfill their life. They think it may be. If only I could be a little more wealthy. If only I could be richer. If only I could make a little more money. James has already said this. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 where he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Did did you catch that? The lowly brother. Let him boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Being wealthy isn't 
what it's cracked up to be. Verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's going to fade away while he's trying to get more and more money. When he's trying to, to, his pursuits that are the pursuit of wealth and money, he's going to fade away. James wants to show what the rich are really like compared to the poor. He exposes the rich who in many cases are far less deserving of our attention than the poor. But please don't, don't hear me say this. We're not going to be partial against rich people either. We aren't partial against rich people or poor people or any other people. We're not partial against anyone. It says show no partiality. So this fallacy is a very clear one that we can see. In verse 5, James raises the question, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. And yes, the answer is he has. God has chosen the poor. God is not one to play favorites based on outward appearances and circumstances of any kind. I'm going to put you on fast forward for just a minute. We're going to look at some verses very quickly just to make that point that God is not one who plays favorites. It doesn't matter to God about a person's nationality. We see that in Acts chapter 10 verses 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God is not one to play favorites and he's not going to play a favorite due to one's nationality. It doesn't matter to God about a person's social and economic standing. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What's another word for sojourner that we hear a lot of in a contemporary usage? How about immigrant? God loves the immigrants, and so should we. It doesn't matter to God about a person's race. Romans chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. I want to say something reverently. God is colorblind. God chooses to be colorblind. Shortly after the close of the Civil War, a black man entered a fashionable church in Richmond, Virginia, one Sunday morning at the beginning of their communion service. When the time came, he walked down the aisle and knelt at the altar. A rustle of shock and anger swept through the congregation. A distinguished layman immediately stood up, stepped forward to the altar, and knelt beside his black brother. Captured by his spirit, the congregation followed. The layman who set the example, by the way, Robert E. Lee. God is colorblind and he wants us to be as well. It doesn't matter to God whether a person is management or rank and file laborer. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 25, in the middle of a setting that talks about masters and bond slaves, he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. It doesn't matter to God how important someone seems to be. Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, Paul says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. It does matter to God how we live. 1 Peter 1.17, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time of exile. Yes, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him. But it says you have dishonored, insulted the poor man. He asks three questions in verses 6 and 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Question number one. Question number two. And are not the rich the ones who drag you into court? Question number three. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? The fourth word that I'd like to bring to our attention is the word consequence. The word consequence in verses 8 through 13. Verse 8 says, keep the royal law and do well. What's the royal law? The royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. It is so important. What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, mind, everything that we have, and your neighbor as ourself. The royal law. Showing partiality violates the royal law. And verse 9 tells us there are consequences for that. But if you show partiality and do wrong, you sin and are convicted of being a transgressor, a lawbreaker. Verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. There is no such thing as a minor sin. Some might say, well, yeah, maybe I'm a little, show a little partiality. It's the way I was brought up. It's the community I was brought up, and that's the way we were. That's the way my folks were. It's okay. It's not all that bad. And God says it's just as bad as any sin that you can name. And he happens to pick out a couple of them. But there is no such thing as a minor sin. Cut a link in a chain, the whole chain is no good. Tightrope walker who takes 99 sure steps out of 100 to cross over the falls. Is he considered good? No, dead. Verse 11, because God forbade adultery and also forbade murder, violate either one and you're a transgressor of the law. So here's the point. One who shows favoritism, one who is prejudiced, one who is a racist, one who shows partiality, has no room to think righteously of himself. He's in bad company with sinners whom he would normally look down his nose at. He's guilty of sinning, and he's right there in the middle of the others that he takes judgment on. Verse 12, very simply put, speak and act as those who will be judged by the law that gives freedom. Live according to God's word is what it says. Recognize that violations of the golden rule do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. That has consequences. We reap what we sow. Verse 13 underscores that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You won't need to be judged if you show mercy. Partiality is no small thing with God. 
Someone has written this. The Lord is often pushed aside in our lives because we disregard needy people because they're different than we are. We forget that Christ may be in the small child who needs attention, the exhausted wife who needs encouragement, or the frustrated laborer who needs recognition. He might be in the grieving grandmother, the lonely shut-in, or the struggling neighbor. They may seem to have little to offer, but if we show kindness to the least of these, it's as if we are doing it to Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. I don't have this on the screen. 1 Timothy 5, 21, it's closed with this. Apostle Paul charging his protege, young Timothy, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. That's pretty good company, isn't it? I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. God couldn't put it more plainly. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you're not holding that faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, go ahead and be partial. But if you're one of mine, he says, don't do that. That's forbidden. Heavenly Father, thank you for making your word so clear to us. And help us 